0: Good afternoon. Hello. Thank you all for being here today. I'm Christopher Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Um, Thanks for coming out on a chilly day, and I also want to thank our conference staff for all the work they do to help us put on these events. Uh, And welcome to those of you who are watching us online at www.cato.org. Here at the Cato Institute, we're we're big believers in free trade, uh, and we're not alone. Uh, the benefits for international from international trade have been enormous. Uh, however, because of a flaw in the global markets for natural resources like oil, consumers are forced to enrich repressive governments and armed groups overseas when paying at the pump or in stores and online. Uh, in his book, Blood Oil, now see, look at this. I brought this book, and this is the whole purpose of bringing the book, so that I can show you, so I can get a good picture of this. So Brendan can get a picture, see? Uh, In his new book, Blood Oil, uh, Leif Wiener focuses on the antiquated anti-market rule at the foundations of global trade, which he proposes to be replaced by a rule of law that will get consumers out of the business with autocrats, militias, and extremists. It's a thought-provoking book. Uh, I'm very happy to welcome him here to Cato today to talk about it and then to answer questions. Let me first tell you a little bit about him before Uh, I turn over the podium to Leif. Uh, Leif Wenar is Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. After earning his bachelor's degree from Stanford, Leif went to Harvard to study with John Rawls and wrote his doctoral thesis on property rights with Robert Nozick and T.M. Scanlon. He has worked in the UK since 1997. Dr. Winar has held visiting professorships at Princeton, Stanford, and the Australian National University, and he's also a fellow of the Center for Ethics and Public Affairs at the Murphy Institute of Political Economy, and also a fellow of the Program on Justice and the World Economy at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs. So with that, I'll turn the podium over to Leif.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks to you for coming. I am so grateful for your being here. And I'm really grateful to Cato. Cato gave the first airing to early versions of these ideas way back in 2008 in a Cato Unbound. And I'm really pleased to be back to present it here today. It also means something for me to be here with you in the Hayek Auditorium. My first edited volume was actually an autobiographical volume called Hayek on Hayek quite some time ago when I was a student working in the Hayek Popper archives. And I'm pleased to see that this volume is still available online for the very reasonable price of (laughs)
2: $14.95.
1: But that's not what I'm here to discuss with you today. I'm here to discuss with you today a problem that would have interested F.A. Hayek, as well as my doctoral supervisor, Robert Nozick. This is the most systematic violation of market rules in the world, which leads to the largest source of unaccountable power in the world. And that unaccountable power comes back to endanger open societies like ours that believe in the people's rights. Let's think about some of the foreign policy problems that we face today. And let me offer you the thought that they have one thing in common. So today, a Cold War is heating up between Saudi Arabia and Iran as these two oil-fueled theocracies inflame religious hatreds across the Middle East. In the Middle East, there are hot civil wars in Libya and in Yemen. And the hottest conflict of all is in Iraq and Syria, which has turned into a Hobbesian war of oil against oil, as the contending armies either sell off crude themselves or proxy for petrocrats. And the atrocities of both ISIS and Assad are creating a continuing refugee crisis into Europe. In Europe, Vladimir Putin seems determined to maintain His oil-fueled dominance over his part of Ukraine while inflaming an aggressive nationalism in Russia. Oil has been behind the West's worst crises and threats for 40 years. And that raises a deep question. Where does the money come from for these men of blood Well, ultimately, of course, it comes from us, from us consumers, when we buy gasoline at the pump and when we pay in the stores for anything that's made with or transported by gasoline, which is almost everything. We've been in business with the men of blood for a long time. The West's worst crises and threats have been coming from oil states for 40 years. So going way back to the Soviet Union in the 70s, it was oil money that paid for the Soviets' surge ahead of us in the nuclear arms race. Oil paid for Saddam's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, paid for Bashir's genocide in Darfur. It's paid for Iran's support of terrorist groups like Hezbollah. And oil money has paid for the Saudis' spread of an extreme version of Islam, not only in its own country, but worldwide, which we now see mutating into a homegrown terrorist threat in the Middle East, in Asia, in Europe, and maybe even here. For a long time, we've been sending our money to aggressive and repressive men overseas, and they've been causing a lot of trouble with our money, which raises a deep question. Why are we in business with those men overseas? Why are we sending them our money in exchange for the oil of their countries? Well, it might seem perfectly natural. They control the oil. We need the oil, so we buy it from them. But in fact, we're in business with these authoritarians and armed groups abroad because of one very old and very bad law, which violates some of our deepest beliefs and which we now need to change. This is our law that says, Whoever controls natural resources by force in other countries will have the right to sell the resources to us. This is our law that says might makes right. So, for example, when Libya was seized by Gaddafi in a coup, we then got the legal right to buy Libya's oil from Gaddafi. And when rebels later seized those same wells from Gaddafi, we got the legal right to buy Libya's oil from the rebels. Might makes right. Now That's a very old law, and we all take it for granted. But when you think about it, it's just got to be wrong. If an armed gang here in Washington takes over a gas station by force. Bystanders don't thereby get the legal right to buy the gas from the gang. That rule would cause chaos. But when Saddam's Ba'ath party took over Iraq in a coup, we got the legal right to buy Iraq's oil from them. And recently, when ISIS and the Kurds took over Iraq's oil wells, the world started buying Iraq's oil from them. Every country's rule for the natural resources of other countries is whoever can control it by force can sell it to us. Every country's rule is might makes right. Now, that rule obviously violates basic principles of the market. In a real market, violence violates property. But according to our law today, violence creates property rights. And not surprisingly, that law, which violates basic market norms, ends up inciting repression and chaos in other countries. When we say that the most coercive men abroad can sell us resources, then it's not surprising that the most coercive will rise to the top. When we say that whoever can control resource-rich territory by force will get large legal revenues, that incites armed groups to fight for the oil, as we see in Libya and in Iraq. And it also empowers authoritarians with the oil money that they can then use to buy the loyalty and the arms to stay in power. Might makes right incentivizes authoritarianism and conflict abroad. And that is what makes oil the largest source of unaccountable power in the world today. Basically, a lot of money will go today to whoever can control some holes in the ground. And they can use that money for their own purposes and ignore the good of the people who have to watch while their natural wealth is sold off beyond their control. The power of oil is almost entirely unaccountable. Our main tools for trying to check the oil power of authoritarians and armed groups are sanctions and military actions. But as we've seen in Iraq and Libya and now with ISIS, sanctions and military actions are clumsy tools they are expensive and have a lot of unintended consequences looking forward the unaccountable power of oil may become an even greater concern the national intelligence council says that the oil producing regions of the world are just the ones that are going to get hotter and hungrier and thirstier and more crowded which means that they're likely to be even less stable than they are today. All of which means we're in a bad place. A heavily entrenched anti-market rule is inciting conflict and extremism and authoritarianism abroad in ways that seriously threaten our interests. The West's biggest crises and threats for 40 years have been driven by this rule, from the Soviet Union through the Middle East to Africa. And unless something can be done about that rule, those threats and crises may well escalate in the future. And now you may be surprised to hear that from now on, the story turns very positive. In fact, so positive, I'm going to confess to you that I have absolute confidence that we can and will abolish this rule of might makes right in the next generation and replace it with a more principled and safer basis for global resource trade, especially for oil. We know that the world can overcome might makes right for resources because we've overcome might makes right so many times before. After all, might makes right was 300 years ago the world's rule for almost everything, even for human beings. 300 years ago, every country's law for human beings was whoever can seize them by force can sell them to us. That was the rule under which the European empires sent 12 million human beings through the Middle Passage, where the survivors were lawfully bought in the Americas as property. It's right. And the coercion-based legal order 300 years ago was much more extensive. 300 years ago, if a state could capture the territory of another state, it gained the internationally recognized legal right to rule that territory. Might made right. If a state could conquer the people of another country, it got the legal right to rule those people as a colony. Might made right. Even within the borders of a state back then, whoever had the most coercive power could do almost anything they wanted to the people of the country. Back then, a sovereign could install a racist apartheid government or engage in ethnic cleansing or even apar- even genocide. All of those things were permitted by international law. Might made right. Now, in the last 300 years, all of those instances of might makes right have been abolished. The slave trade, conquest, colonialism, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, genocide, these are all now violations of international law. Now, we know that we haven't magically abolished power, and our new international laws are still violated far too often. But the great moral advances that humanity has made in the past three centuries have all come from turning what were respectable exercises of violence, like the slave trade, colonial rule, and apartheid, into widely reviled crimes. We can do that now for Might Makes Right with resources. It's going to be challenging to upgrade the global market for oil. America is going to have to stop buying resources from authoritarians and armed groups. And it's going to have to convince the rest of the world to do that as well. And that's going to be hard. But the good news is that America already has a huge head start in doing that. On paper, at least, the world has already agreed to a better, modern, basis for global trade in oil. The world has already agreed to a new idea for who should control oil in oil-producing countries. This is nothing other than one of America's most profound political ideas, which was expressed by Abraham Lincoln in his first inaugural, a country belongs to its people a country belongs to its people, the people should have the ultimate right to control the land, and that includes its oil. It's the people and not power who should make the ultimate decisions over what should happen to a country's oil. Now, this principle is an American principle. It's not a partisan principle. So let me quote both sides of the aisle endorsing Lincoln's words. Senator Bob Graham of Florida said, there's a fundamental fact that the oil and gas off of our shores is an American asset. It belongs to the people of the United States of America. And on the other side, George W. Bush in 2006 said of Iraq's oil, it belongs to the Iraqi people. It's their asset. What Lincoln's principle means in practical terms is that citizens should be able to hold their government accountable for what the government does with the country's resources. Whether the government decides to privatize those resources like we do here, or sell them to foreigners, or just leave them in the ground. The test for Lincoln's principle is, can the citizens of the country find out what's happening to the resources? And if a majority strongly disagree with what the government's doing with them, can they get change through without risking their safety or their lives? Now, this principle, which says that a country belongs to its people, is widely believed. And that's fortunate, because this principle is the only realistic replacement for might makes right for resources. Again, sanctions and military actions are clumsy tools for checking the oil power of authoritarians and armed groups. The only consistent accountability over resources has to come from the people of the country who are living right there on the ground. This principle is widely believed. Not only George W. Bush has said the people own the oil, the presidents of Mexico and Brazil and Ghana. Even Ayatollah Khamenei says the oil belongs to the people. And even better, almost every country in the world has already ratified one of the two major human rights treaties, both of which say in their Article 1, all peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural resources. The US, China, India, Brazil, South Africa, 98% of the world's population lives in a country that has already officially endorsed these words. So the world today already talks the talk, but even America has not taken the steps to make Lincoln's principle into real law. When a country's resources are sold off beyond any accountability to its citizens, then by this principle, those resources are literally stolen from the people. When America makes this principle and to real law, Americans will no longer have the legal right to buy that oil and will no longer be in legal business with the coercive actors abroad just because they control oil by force. Well, how can we make that practical? Deliberately, responsibly, America should pass laws that taper off oil imports from all countries where citizens can't possibly hold their government accountable for exports. America only needs to change its own laws enforced on its own people and its own soil. Our soldiers can stay home. America will declare that who rules in Saudi Arabia is none of our business, but right now, the present Saudi regime qualifies for none of our business. And America will then have to convince all countries to stop importing from any country where citizens lack the bare bones civil liberties and political rights to hold their leaders accountable for resource exports. So here you can think, for example, of the not free countries on the Freedom House scale, or also the countries at the bottom of Ian's Human Freedom Index. So that's mostly Persian Gulf countries, Russia, Central Asian exporters, big African exporters as well. Today, over half traded oil is exported beyond any accountability to the citizens of the country, which means that today over half of traded oil is literally stolen. And we shouldn't buy it. Now, for countries where there is accountability over oil, our new laws will say that the people there can do what they like with their resources. Privatize them, sell them to foreigners, leave them in the ground. Our laws will respect any decisions that foreigners make with their, about their own resources, so long as it's not the government selling off their assets without the people's consent. America can lead the world through this transition as it's already started to do. America has already passed groundbreaking laws to try to keep corrupt officials in oil-producing countries more accountable to their people. And dozens of countries have copied our laws for that. After 9-11, America led the import ban on blood diamonds that were being sold by vicious African militias to Al-Qaeda, and many countries followed. That, America can extend its ban on blood diamonds to blood oil, too. Now, if I'm reading your minds correctly, you might be thinking that there will be challenges to this proposal. So let me just briefly cover two frequently asked questions. The West will have enough energy without authoritarian oil and gas. Nick Butler, who you might know as the energy columnist from the FT, used to be a BP executive, has said that the U.S. transition away from authoritarian oil could be almost instant and nearly costless, while a European transition would be slower and more costly as Europe installs more infrastructure for gas, but it would still be feasible in cost and time. China and India will also have incentives to stop importing stolen oil, or else they will become dependent for their energy supplies on the increasingly unstable arc of oil that runs from Russia through the Middle East to Africa, that's been giving us so much trouble for the last 40 years. Overall, the transition in global oil trade will be substantial in costs, but so will business as usual. The alternative is to keep on with Mike Makes Right and to try to contain the increasing instability in oil producing regions with the clumsy tools of sanctions and military action. Now. I know you'll have thoughts, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Let me leave you with the big picture. For 40 years, the West's worst crises and threats have come from oil-producing states. The real driver is an archaic anti-market law, which violates some of the deepest principles of our political morality and turns oil into the largest source of unaccountable power in the world. We already have the basis in place to transition away from that bad old rule to a modern principle that is widely believed. The transition will take effort, but so were the transitions away from the slave trade and colonialism and apartheid transitions that took effort. We can do this if we want to do this. America can lead the world by abolishing might makes right for oil and getting us out of business with today's men of blood. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Leif. Um, It's now my pleasure to introduce our two distinguished commentators. Uh, I'm gonna introduce them in the order that they'll speak. Uh, First up will be Bruce Jenelson. Bruce currently holds the Henry A. Kissinger Chair in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress's John W. Kluge Center. He is also a professor of public policy and political science at Duke University, where he previously served as director of the Terry Sanford Institute of Public Policy, now the Sanford School of Public Policy. In addition to being a leading scholar of American foreign policy, Bruce has also served in a number of US policy and political positions including a senior advisor to the U.S. State Department's policy planning director from 2009 to 2011, as a member of President Obama's uh, 2012 campaign, a member of the National Security Advisory Steering Committee. He was also senior foreign policy advisor to Vice President Al Gore in his 2001 presidential campaign. Uh, Jentleson holds a PhD from Cornell University and he was a recipient of the American Political Science Association's Harold D. Laswell Award for his doctoral dissertation. Our second commentator today is my friend and colleague, Ian Vasquez, the director of Cato's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Ian is the co-author of the Human Freedom Index, editor of Global Fortune, The Stumble and Rise of World Capitalism, and co-editor of Perpetuating Poverty, the World Bank, the IMF, and the Developing World. His articles have appeared in new newspapers throughout the United States and Latin America. He's a columnist of El Comercio in Peru. He's also a frequent guest on radio and television discussing foreign policy and development issues, and he's testified numerous times before Congress on economic development issues. Ian holds degrees from Northwestern University and Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. So with that, uh, Bruce, take it away.
3: Uh, Thanks very much to Chris for the uh, gracious introduction and invitation. Thanks also to my friend and colleague, John Mueller, for the invitation to be here. Um, And it's a real opportunity to engage with Professor Winar, both with him and his book and the topic. In fact, like often happens in these situations, you find out other connections that you didn't know you had. So he's been a fellow at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs. The last few years I've actually been on the Board of Trustees. A very interesting organization, one of the many organizations founded by Andrew Carnegie, Uh, you know who some of you probably have read his biography but generally know about was this very you know unusual combination of a successful some would say ruthless businessman and what might be seen as a naive idealist about peace around the beginning of World War One he was kind of running around the world trying to convince people to stop the war in fact he asked Teddy Roosevelt to help him At which point Teddy Roosevelt said, I actually think maybe it's not such a bad thing that this thing happens. Uh, But uh, he he created a number of organizations, one of which was ours. And it's really one of the few organizations that's out there uh, that's really dedicated to this notion of ethics in international affairs. uh, That's very much a part of this study, uh, as well as a lot of other issues. So I thought I'd make some general comments about the book and maybe then some ideas that that come out of my my reading of it. I I think... um, uh, life was too modest to share a lot of the recognitions that come with the book. It's sort of a publisher's dream to have the people you have endorsing it, those who have the book, can see this on the inside and the outside, uh, and including Angus Deaton, who you know is a recent winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, so great timing to have the book out <laughs> and have him on there uh, with this extra publicity. But I think it speaks to the kinds of people that see this book as an important contribution, uh, philosophers, economists a number of other people and they fall at a lot of points on the political spectrum. Um, and many of them are saying it's not that they totally agree, uh, but that they feel that it's important study, uh, you know, to, to really raise these issues. Uh, it actually struck me, reminded me of that old expression from William Blake, where he talked about a grain of sand in which you see the world. And there's so many issues that this book speaks to, uh, security, corruption, poverty, uh, governance, instability, war, terrorism, foreign policy, uh, that it really relates to in, in a variety of ways. Uh, and it relates to it both in terms of the normative, the ethical dimension, but also some very, very profound uh, policy issues. Um, and it's also both philosophy and policy. Uh, it's scholarly and applied, something Chris and I spent a lot of time working on and talking about uh, You know, within the, within the academy. You know, John has some of these same... Uh, uh, concerns where there's been this gap between the academic world and the policy world. And it's not so much that people in academia always have bright ideas for policy, uh, but there's always a benefit to synergies and cross-fertilizations. And moreover, you know, as a professor, I think it really would enhance our role as institutions in society at every level, where it's the local level, working on issues at a local level all the way up to the global level. And I think this book really does a nice combination of being deeply philosophical but also including the policy the recommendations very much applied to policy. So in terms of its argument and analysis of the problem, uh, it is very much a part of what has come to be known as the resource curse. In fact, we had an email correspondence about this, about some colleagues, his and mine, Paul Collier, Bob Conrad, and my colleague at Duke, who work on the economic aspect. And in the response, they said that this was very much about the political governance aspect of the resource curse. And I think that's exactly right. You know, from the perspective of American foreign policy, the kinds of issues that he deals with—if you think about not only the number of conflicts, but I think the problem has been the coming together both of security motivations and economic motivations. So in the Cold War, many of these relationships we had not only with oil-producing states, but indeed many other producers of natural resources. Uh, you know, Latin America, uh, bananas and, and 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 various kinds of fruits, copper in Chile. Uh, you know, all sorts of things coming out of Zaire, was this notion as, um, and it's attributed to various people in history. Some say Franklin Roosevelt was the first to say it. He may be an SOV, but he's our SOB. You know, we don't really care what he does at home, whether he robs his own people uh, or represses their human rights, as long as they support us in this grand bipolar conflict, you know, of the Cold War. Uh, And then on the other side, you know, the question of whether or not uh, those who would be opposing these regimes could be considered for American support. Uh, this was actually a quote from the American ambassador to Guatemala when he testified to a congressional hearing after the covert action in 1954 by the CIA to, the CIA to overthrow the democratically elected government for a number of reasons, but some, some left wing leanings, but also because it was nationalizing United Fruit and the like. And he came before Congress and, and they were asked, well, was this the only alternative in Congress? And he said, well, we, we applied the duck test. And when he asked what the duck test was, he said, you know, it's like if you're in a barnyard and you look at a bunch of animals and you're not sure if it's a duck, but it walks like a duck, sounds like a duck, hangs around with other ducks, you know it's a duck. And, and when you put that together with the he may be an SOB, that really, I think, explains a lot of the dynamics of American foreign policy in the so-called Third World in the Cold War, uh, how we viewed the alternatives and why we supported many of the regimes that we did. Uh, in the Middle East, it's been very um, a uh, graphic case it reminded me in reading this of the um, Arab Human Development Report written in 2002 under UN auspices, but by a team of, of economists and other social scientists and policy people about the problems were in the Arab world about basic human development uh, and the ways in which leaders had sort of used the Arab-Israeli conflict to kind of keep a lid on things. Uh, there have been some efforts to go back to this 50, you know, almost 15 years later and see some of the same fundamental problems. And I think the distorted development, arguably, I think, is worse in the Middle East than almost any other region, and it's also the most oil-rich region. Uh, as we think about the 21st century and how we separate these, much of our debate today uh, about, you know, in the context now, not of a Soviet threat, uh, but of concerns about terrorism, is do we do, he may be an SOB, but he's our SOB. Saudi Arabia uh, raises this and a number of other issues. So I think trying to unpack those and raise the question about whether that A is working uh, and B you know is ethical, particularly for a country that prides itself, claims at least that its foreign policy is based upon values, not just interest, uh, is very important going forward because we still have this you know, security uh, dimension more than we perhaps thought we would uh, 15 years ago. The other point I wanted to make is the core argument here is about market imperfection, you know, that, that, you know, markets have been imperfect. They actually haven't been allowed to function to a great extent. Uh, and that therefore you need these kinds of changes of laws, really regulatory proposals that life makes about who we should trade with and who we shouldn't and how we get there. So I have to say, given my own sort of political heritage and political leanings, um, that, to me is a similar argument that's made about climate change. Uh, and my old boss, Al Gore, has been very much in the forefront of that. And I didn't work on the climate change issues for him. I worked on other foreign policy issues. But in some ways, the argument there about climate change is we have imperfect markets, uh, and indeed, if you look at some of the calculations that are being done uh, by insurance companies about the wisdom of insuring hotels uh, on, the, on the beaches in Miami uh, or investment, we're beginning to see shifts in the cost curves here that are very interesting, and there can be debates about You know optimal ways to get to where you want to go and how much regulatory but it is another case of market imperfections uh, in which you know I and others here may differ about about the implications of that for policy Um, uh, but it comes out of the same notion that markets are imperfect and uh, policies can make mess them up further but policies can also do what markets are supposed to do and don't always do for themselves the conception of property rights that he develops, that I think, is very interesting. Um, uh, I mentioned a little bit in the presentation, but it's, it's just the heart of the book, which is that the notions of, of, of sovereignty, that these belong to the people of the country, not necessarily just to their government. This debate is going on in a lot of spheres of international life, too, these days. Uh, it's been raised with the so-called responsibility to protect norm about when the international community may have a responsibility to intervene uh, militarily or otherwise in countries. And the argument has been that, you know, sovereignty, that there's always been less of a binary. The notion of Westphalian sovereignty has really been a fiction for a long time in terms of its pure sense, uh, that the ability of states to determine everything that happens in their own borders isn't as true as claim, whether it's the economic effects of what happens on Wall Street uh, or it's uh, uh, fires in Indonesia burning down You know, the forest for the palm oil, closing down schools in Singapore uh, as it spreads. And so, the question of how much sovereignty comes with the rights of the people, and when their governments violate that fundamental notion uh, of normative sovereignty in terms of their relation to their people, what that means, I think is a big debate. You know, when the SARS epidemic broke, broke out in 2003 or so, China's original reaction was they didn't want information to get out because they felt it would both harm their image and harm their economy. But many felt the world had a right to that information because it could spread uh, in an age in which we have one pandemic after another. So I think really tapping some interesting questions here you know, about sovereignty that um, uh, in terms of uh, consistent with property rights, but it's sort of an evolutionary way uh, of thinking about that. How likely are the changes to happen that he proposes? Um, one of the other issues related to this I want to mention before getting into the policy side is this question of identity that he raises and this whole notion of cosmopolitanism, you know, which, which is a really interesting idea. And again, it's not left or right, liberal or conservative, but the notion in an interconnected world, to what extent can are people thinking about some notion of shared identity? Uh, Marcia Sen has done some very interesting work on this as well, in which he talks about different levels of identity, which are a little bit like Maslowian psychology. It doesn't mean that cosmopolitanism replaces feeling like an American or a Spaniard or a Greek or a German or whatever. But the question is, are we able to have, and he argues we have, we are, and Leif argues the same thing, multiple s- sources of identity. I mean, I have to say that even at the more local level, I'm a New Yorker. Uh, And um, when both my children married people from Boston who are Red Sox fans, uh, I have never gotten over that identity, even though I haven't lived in New York for a long, long time. Um, So I think this question of identity and cosmopolitanism also is a very rich idea. And it's not an uh, altruistic or naive idea, but I think think it's something to work with in a practical way. Um, The likelihood of change. you know, this is an area, and again, for me it connects a lot to climate change. And we have people like Pope Francis making the morality argument in a way that people have perceived as very ecumenical. We have the economics and the cost curves beginning to change. Um, another little anecdote, at a very local level, uh, we have a, a, a little cottage up in the mountains in Southwest Virginia, an area called Floyd County, Virginia, people may be familiar with it. And it's an area in which a whole lot of people coming out of the 70s, the hippie culture settled. Uh, A lot of artists there, musicians, and there's a very conservative element there as well that have been there forever. Uh, And it's a county that prides itself on all of the water flows out of Floyd County. Very pure. You don't need Brita or anything for your water there. So last year, there was a pipeline coming through, a transmission pipeline, natural gas, working its way to, to, to one of the coasts. And you got a coalition of the left and the right that came together to block this pipeline from coming through Floyd County. Why? Because they had this common, se- common interest in the sense of, of, of the environment. So when you see things like that at the local level, as well as some of the things we see at the global level, you know, I think there's a lot of possibilities here. I'd make a couple of suggestions in closing. As I say keep developing the policy strategies. Some of these are pretty far-reaching proposals. I mean, to, to sort of ban trade the way we're talking about is take it sort of sanctions on steroids. And it has a logic to it on a normative basis. But I think with the allies that work in this area, if you go to their clean energy, clean trade website, uh, you can see there's a number of other organizations. Paul Collier at Oxford has the Extractive Industries Initiative that are working in this area. I think that, uh, and there's some creative strategies in here like the baby boycott and the toy toycott. And you know some of this happened with tropical lumber where it was at the consumer level, not just at the producer level. But I think it needs. A bit of work on the website and elsewhere to come up with some steps to get to where you want to go. I think some of the proposals are useful for debate, but and I'm not a pure incrementalist in the sense of incrementalism uh, as an in ends, but I think as a means to the ends of where you want to go. In that sense, you know, there's some comparative case strategizing. Um, when we first Chris teaches at the UC California, University of California Washington Center. I was involved in creating that back in 1990, and when we first created it, one of our faculty who came was a guy from the med school who did a lot of work on, on, on gun control and violence. Uh, as he said, he sewed up one too many people in the emergency room. And one of the first things he did was convene what we would call a comparative case study conference with people who'd worked on tobacco and seatbelts. And, you know, what were the lessons across cases of sort of, in this case, public interest strategizing that they could then apply to this area? It might be interesting to do that with your area and see, you know, obviously some things work in some cases and some not. Uh, but I think it would be an interesting way of developing them further. Um, one other point I think is I feel like it's a little too Western-centric in both its philosophy and its politics. Um, think about what's happening in China today, where the same week as the, as the Paris conference You had red alerts on pollution in in Beijing. Uh, And what's happening there is, I think, a recalculation of interests in the sense that the public health costs are going up and they may be greater now than are the costs of trying to be a little bit more oriented towards clean energy and clean trade in their foreign policies, including the way that they have become one of the principal consumers uh, for oil and other extractive industries. Um, And broader, and I think in not just kind of, but in sort of Asian philosophy, there's a communitarianism uh, that I think has some elements here that, that, that um, come with cosmopolitanism. So I think that it's, while we're talking about the people of these countries, I think there can be a broad notion here. It's a little bit uh, more Western-centric than I think um, would be optimal. Um, final point, I think, is that um, the core proposition uh, that the ultimate right of peoples to control their country's resources, as is stated in the book, um, is important. But in some respects, I think it needs to be complemented by others because it's too other oriented. It's, it's somewhat altruistic. It, it pushes people in the West and elsewhere to act for others, not ourselves. And that's not necessarily a sufficiently winning strategy. Uh, not just values what are our values as a consumer? Uh, or as an individual, but the ways in which this impacts us, the ways in which these problems create security problems for the United States and others, you know, without overstating it uh, and getting over the alarm, as well due respect to John, on these issues of terrorism. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's not just terrorism, you know, it's a whole variety of wars, it's a whole variety of issues, a whole variety of other trade-offs that come within it. So I think that, you know, uh, there's a proposition here of self-interest mixed with values that can help make people see why this is important to them, uh, and even in a net sense, give them a calculation of interest that can come out on the positive side. So I think it's really interesting, and I think it's on the right track, and these are really offered as friendly amendments. So. Thank you. Thanks very much,
4: uh, uh, Chris, for inviting me. I'm going to give very brief comments, from, mostly from a development point of view, uh, rather than from a security or foreign policy perspective. And from a development point of view, I was uh, relieved and pleased that Dr. Wiener's book offers a philosophical framework that unites human rights and development. Too often, advocates of, of human rights belittle the importance of the market economy or are outright hostile to it while proponents of economic development, be they the World Bank, the IMF, or, or others, ignore human rights violations or actually um, enable them in the name of growth or some other development goal. Dr. Winar recognizes that a true market economy is necessarily based in the respect for human rights and that freedom of choice Uh, voluntary exchange and other principles of the free market are themselves human rights. So I think that that uh, framework is very important. I very much appreciate the importance that he gives in the book to property rights, the basis not just of economic freedoms, but of all freedoms. In focusing on the so-called curse of natural resources, I also think he does a fine job of describing just how enmeshed the use of stolen property as he uh, calls it is in the global economy and in our everyday lives it's a more extensive uh, it, it, it's more extensive than uh, what most people probably realize and i think it does pose a moral problem i fully agree with the author that military force or occupation is not an effective or desirable solution to the problem of authoritarian regimes enriching themselves uh, on natural resources. But I'm afraid that I'm not convinced uh, by the solutions that he offers. Dr. Winart focuses on oil, partly because oil is central uh, to the world economy, however, simply expecting that we can convince uh, other countries to stop buying oil from authoritarian regimes like that of the the Saudis strikes me as quite unrealistic. Uh, Dr. Winard cites the end of the slave trade as an analogy to today. But that episode came about under the British Empire that used naval power to enforce the ban, an option that Dr. Winard rightly rejects. He also <laughs> cites the Kimberley process to stop the sale of blood diamonds. And as he acknowledges, one of the founders of that initiative, the Global Witness, pulled out of the process because it felt that, in fact, uh, the initiative was not anymore accomplishing its goal of um, certifying whether the the blood diamonds are actually being sold or not. But even if we acknowledge notable progress under the Kimberley prog- process, which I think there has been, that analogy also falls short. Diamonds just don't even come close to the role and importance that oil plays in the world economy. It may be uh, that some countries could be convinced to go along with Dr. Winar's proposals, but it would require them to impose tariffs on those like China that would likely not go along with the proposals. And I do think that countries like China and Russia would, are not likely to go along uh, with those uh, proposals. Certainly uh, China, which imports uh, oil. And here I think there would be a big step backwards for liberty and human rights. Trade liberalization has played a big role in the dramatic fall in global poverty in the past several decades and has been one of the key reforms that countries that previously had authoritarian regimes from Korea to Chile, implemented on their way to civil and political freedom. (laughs) China, although not a a free country, is vastly more free today than it was 35 years ago when its its reforms began. And although it's too early to tell, I'm still betting that it will follow the path that so many other countries uh, have followed uh, to greater freedom. That outcome, however, is imperiled or it would be imperiled if the United States or other countries began raising tariffs uh, on it. The most likely result would be a tit-for-tat tariff uh, escalation, not just with China, but with much of the world. It is not even clear uh, that the tariffs would be consistent with the enforcement of human rights. Not all of China, not all the oil that China imports comes from authoritarian regimes. So we would surely be imposing tariffs on Chinese producers who did not profit from blood oil. And to be consistent with uh, Dr. Winar's framework, his approach should logically be applied not just to resource-rich countries, but to all countries where regimes violate basic freedoms and enrich themselves through uh, favoritism. That would imply imposing tariffs again on much of the world, undermining much of the progress on trade liberalization the world has made over the course of many decades that I do think has benefited uh, billions of people. I'm afraid that as long uh, as we live in a a world of nasty regimes, we will have to choose from uh, a set of imperfect solutions weighing costs and benefits not just in economic terms, but in terms of liberty and human rights. And I don't think that Dr. Wenner's proposals push the balance in the right direction. And one of the reasons is that outside policies to affect development have a limited impact on a country's development path. I think that that's one of the conclusions of all the work that development economists have done uh, over the course of many years. Uh, when they look at foreign aid policies and other policies that rich countries have toward developing countries. It is the the, the domestic set of policies and and institutions of a country that determine that country's uh, development uh, path. And there is really a limited set of policies that rich countries can implement to push countries in the right direction. Fortunately, we know that the resource curse doesn't actually exist. It is, as I say, the quality of institutions and policies that determine whether resources in a country become a curse or a blessing. There are countries, as uh, Dr. winard uh, notes uh, on several occasions in the book, that are resource-rich and are rich. There are countries that are resource-rich and are poor or cursed, as the saying goes. At the same time, there are rich countries that have no resources and vice, vice versa. So, so. Uh, The key here seems to be, or is, the quality of institutions. A few years ago, um, the Fraser Institute published a study quantifying that relationship. It found that when a country improves its economic freedom and its rule of law scores on a scale of 0 to 10, where, where 10 is the best score in terms of quality, when it improves its score, to about 6.9 on that scale, it is able to break the resource curse. More recently, uh, Peter Kaznachev of the Russian Academy of National Economy and Public Administration looked at a whole range of international indicators to reach similar conclusions. It's the domestic policies and institutions that matter. Chile has broken the resource curse through internal reforms that it implemented in the past several decades. Malaysia may be another example of a country that did so. Uh, Botswana is a country rich in diamonds that never suffered uh, the resource curse. We may uh, begin seeing more such cases that result not from outside policies intended toward that end, but rather as a result of other factors. Specifically, what I'm uh, thinking about right now is that the the end of the commodity super cycle means that the price of oil has dropped from about $147 uh, per barrel in 2008 to $29 uh, per barrel today. This has done more to weaken authoritarian regimes than any single policy intended uh, to do so. And it is the result, as my colleague Andrei Ilarionov notes, of uh, free market policies in several places. The first is in the United States, where the shale revolution itself, a result of having a free market institutional setup in the United States that gave the incentives, provided the incentives for that uh, burst of production of oil and gas, uh, and has led to the United States becoming the largest uh, producer of oil. That, combined with the end of the oil ban uh, in the United States, has really uh, put pressure on the other oil producers, specifically in the, in the Middle East and elsewhere, um, and led to the other factor, which is that Saudi Arabia has decided to compete on free market terms with, uh, with the United States and other producers by continuing to pump out its oil. In other words, it's it's competing for market share rather than trying futilely to manipulate the price of oil. The uh, global oil economy is becoming a a competitive market. This uh, this uh, behavior by Saudi Arabia uh, is, of course, help contributing to the death of OPEC. Finally, uh, my colleague uh, Andrei Ilarinov likes to. To cite also the end of the ban, uh, the end of sanctions uh, on oil-producing Iran. This combination of policies is changing um, uh, the factors that influence authoritarian uh, oil resource regimes, and this has dropped. This is what has dropped the price of oil, oil so dramatically, weakening regimes from. Russia to Venezuela and striking a powerful blow for freedom in a way that no single uh, policy intended to do so has been able to do. Uh, We may very well, uh, my colleague cites, be entering for the first time in many, many decades into a truly global free market in oil that is here to stay with important beneficial um, uh, consequences for geopolitics and for freedom and human rights. This is the result of uh, precisely these nations competing by pumping out more oil. And this is all the more reason I think uh, we should be cautious with Dr. Wernard's proposals even if we agree with his ends. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, uh, Bruce and Ian. I also want to thank, uh, Bruce mentioned our, my colleague, uh, John Mueller, our colleague, senior fellow here at Cato, and also at Ohio State University, who who I should say reintroduced Cato to Leif because Leif was uh, contributed to a Cato Unbound uh, several years ago, and so uh, things come around. I-, I want to give Leif an opportunity to quickly respond to a few of the things that, that Bruce and Ian said, but I, I did want to, exert my uh, moderator's privilege and and pick up on one point. It it follows a little bit in terms of what uh, Ian said with respect to the role that the British Navy played in ending the slave trade in the 19th century. Um, While on the one hand, Leif, you say, this is about changing US laws and no troops are necessary, and then the next step is to convince other nations to do the same. Well, that's where the troops are necessary uh, because convincing other countries to change their laws and to change their behaviors in ways that may be contrary to their immediate near-term interests, the point that, that, Bruce, that Bruce raised, that's where I get a little hung up. And one thing that pe- some people know about me, I was in the United States Navy, uh, and let me just tell you that the nuts and bolts of enforcing sanctions is a troop-heavy process, uh, potentially. So I'd, I'd ask you to pick up a little bit on this question of the balance between uh, moral suasion a- as expressed voluntarily, peacefully, by individuals choosing not to do business with companies that, that, are, that uh, uh, do poorly. And that, well, I thought one of, the fa- one of my favorite points in your book is you point out that the, the companies that we know are not the ones that are most guilty of this because they care about their brand, right? They care about how consumers, in a, in a voluntary way, would not choose to deal with your brand. So how do you address this question of the balance between uh, uh, consumers' preferences and the, and the use of force, even the subtext of the use of force?
1: Good. Thank you so much. And thank you for the luxurious attention that you've given to the book and the remarks are so, so sapient. Let me pick up on this point. Troops are not necessary for this. Our soldiers can stay home. We need to change our own laws on our own soil for our own people. The world is already convinced of the better principle. Country belongs to its people. Oil belongs to its people. Like I said, 98% of the people in the world live in a country that has signed up to one of the two main human rights covenants both of which say, in Article 1, all peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. And just a note, the people's right to control their resources is the only right that's stated twice in both human rights documents. The world believes that already. Even the Communist Party of China, of the People's Republic of China, is officially committed to that position, that the people are sovereign over their country, including the natural resources. The world already believes that the oil belongs to the people in the first instance. And no one really can get behind might makes right. It's obviously on the wrong side of history. If we stand up for our principles, and show that we're willing to bear costs to do the right thing, that power of example will do a huge amount. Now, the questions are focused on China, and that's exactly right. China really does have to announce, and I want to emphasize announce, that at some point in the future, maybe in the medium to long term, China has to announce that it will no longer accept stolen oil. That announcement in itself may bring transformative pressures to bear in the major oil-producing countries. There are reformers outside the palaces, and especially inside the palaces. They're looking for a window of opportunity to bring out the constitutional changes they've been promising their peoples for years and never seem to get around to. It's true in Qatar. It's true in Saudi. It's true in the Emirates. A lot of these countries, there are change agents waiting for a window. If we can peacefully stand up for our own principles and say that we're on the side of the peoples of those countries, and we're not going to buy the oil until the people have basic civil rights and political liberties, that will give a window of opportunity to the people of those countries to make changes themselves. This is not a proposal. That's against China. This is a proposal that takes on a problem that China and the United States have together. The great and growing instability in the energy-producing regions of the world. We don't need that energy anymore. If China really doesn't want to go along with this proposal, well, then they can have the instability that we've seen for the last 40 years, and they can learn the lesson that we've been learning. This is just too dangerous a proposal to continue with. So we should work with our friends in China to make this transition together. If U.S., EU, China, even India can make the announcement together, then... Oil supplies may not need to change at all. The transformative changes in the oil producing states may come about spontaneously, and then the energy can continue to flow. It might mean it might require us to use the harder edges tools of the of the sanctions that I propose, but if all goes well, change can come about without any shots being fired. Let me just mention. That might sound impossible, but how many impossible political changes have happened in your lifetime, <laughs> your lifetime? <laughs> in the Soviet Union, the apartheid, African American president. How many of us expected those things before they happen? Stand up for our principles. Change really can come. The world is already convinced that we need a better rule for trading oil.
0: Okay. Um, well, we do have time for questions uh, by my well, about 20 minutes, so a couple rules here at the Cato Institute. You've probably heard them before. Uh, first thing is to wait for the microphone. That's for the benefit of your fellow people in the audience, but also those watching online. So do wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. And lastly, uh, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. That means that you should phrase your question in the form of a question. Uh, no speeches, please. So. Uh, uh here on the uh, uh, end uh right there james uh and uh yeah and then I'll get behind yes sir
5: hi Jim Lowen, a sociologist um, I've got a kind of a specific and a general question i guess um, if we look at Iran it seems to me that Iran is as democratic now with all of its faults as it has been th- since since its creation, uh, with the possible exception of the Mossadegh era, but of course, as you implied, it was the CIA and the United States that uh, ended that. Um, so I'm wondering how Iran would uh, fit. It seems like it would have to be one of the most favored nations under your um, under your thinking. And my general question is: oil seems to be almost as fungible as money. And so if we say we don't want any Saudi. Uh, oil until they democratize, um, won't that, you know, then, then obviously the oil we do like, let's say Venezuela, because it's more democratic, uh, will come in, and the Saudi oil won't come in here, but won't it go elsewhere, maybe at a very slightly higher price, Because I mean, lower price, excuse me, because the Venezuelan is better oil because it's more democratic, but won't it still go elsewhere and, and do its harm within the country of Saudi Arabia?
0: Thank you. The giant bathtub problem. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Thanks very much. You're absolutely right about Iran and its history. Let me make a little clearer what the test should be about whether the people can hold their government to account for oil exports. The test is, can the people find out what's happening to their oil? Can they talk about that with each other without fearing for their safety or their lives? Can they protest it peacefully without fearing their safety or their lives? And if a majority strongly opposes what the government is doing, will the government's policies change in a reasonable time? Basic tests for whether the people have the ultimate control over the resources of their country. (laughs) Let me take that challenge, because that's a good one. Imagine that 100 million Americans today strongly opposed or strongly favored fracking. Ask your friends who are in the fracking debate what they could do with 100 million Americans who are willing to call a general strike until policy on fracking were changed. I do believe the American people do have control over our natural resources, at least in that sense. We can find out what's happening to our resources. We can talk about it. We can protest it. And if a majority strongly wants some resource policy to change, it'll change. I don't believe that that's true in Iran. I don't believe that's true. There is democracy in Iran, but at the very top, there is a supreme leader who selects candidates and so on. I would be thrilled if we could become friends with Iran again, as we were in 1952 when America was the most popular foreign country in Iran. They're natural political allies. But as things are right now, that regime qualifies for none of our business because the people there can't possibly be consenting for their oil to be sold off. Oil is fungible, and when we stop buying stolen oil, then it will go elsewhere until China and India announce that they will also stop buying stolen oil. And that's the announcement that we're going to hope is going to bring these transformative changes in these countries Let me say that transformative change is probably coming to these countries anyways. And it can happen suddenly, or we can try to let the air out of the balloon before it explodes. We can either keep sending our money to the authoritarians and armed groups in the Middle East who have caused such instability in the last five years, or slowly, responsibly, we can taper off our business with those actors and say that we're only going to buy oil from Some groups who are accountable to the people. If we keep sending money in there, my view is that there will be serious instability in the Middle East. Change is coming in one way or the other. We should get on the side of the people before that change happens.
0: Okay, uh, we have a question here in the front, uh, right there, and then... uh...
6: Yes, hello. I'm, I'm a former executive director, the World Bank for Venezuela. During the Iraq crisis, I begged on my knees that they would try to do an oil revenue sharing in Iraq. They spelled it out in the Iraq study group, the possibility. What would have been the difference? Let me tell you, my country, 97% of all exports goes directly to the government. If there is more transparency on that, people will feel even more obliged to bow to the government. There are some cases where the income is so big that transparency is counterproductive in TNL terms. EITI has spoken about transparency. You can speak about transparency when it's 10, 15, 20 percent. When it's 97 percent of your country, you don't speak about transparency. You pray that they don't know how much money they make.
0: Okay, that's a good question when transparency doesn't help.
1: That's interesting. I'd I'd really like to talk to you more about that. And I'm sure you know a lot about the situation in Venezuela that I could learn from. I'd be grateful for your views on that. Transparency, I'm for it as much as it will help. My My main ask here, though, is that we get out of business with leaders who only have might as their license to sell. So if things go very badly in Venezuela, Now, which Maduro is sometimes threatening, if they go very, very badly, and he does really roll back civil liberties and political rights and rule by force, by our own law right now, we will still continue to buy oil from that regime. And that's the rule that should be our primary concern. We really do have to get out of business with people whose only license is their guns.
0: Okay, we have a question on this side, and then I'll get in the middle. Uh, Go ahead. James.
4: Yes, um, Pat Spann, just uh, myself. I wonder, uh, Dr. Van and uh, Dr. Janelson, I wonder, uh, listening to you both speak, I got the feeling that uh, you guys seem to think that the concept of nation-state is uh, outdated, blasé, uh, I think, and do you actually, it sounds like both of you seem to be uh, leaning towards um, one world government. <laughs> Did I miss something?
3: Um,
1: yes. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Pay attention. All right. Yeah.
1: The resources belong to the people of the country, the people of the country, to the citizens of the country. Think about Senator Graham again. It's a fundamental fact. The oil and gas off of our coast belongs to the people of the United States of America. This is very much a project that's grounded in the nation state. Now, as Bruce mentioned, the idea of the Westphalian state is, thank goodness, partially behind us. The Westphalian nation state had great powers that it no longer has, the powers to take over territory of another country, colonial rule, and internally, not only as I mentioned, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, and genocide, but the Westphalian state could sell off the territory of its country without the people's consent and could violate human rights without any legitimate external criticism. The Westphalian nation state is very much curtailed. And it, the government no longer has those powers. Thank goodness for that. I'm just adding one more proposal. The government should no longer have the power to sell off the resources of the country without the people's possible. Bruce, do you want to add to that?
3: Yeah. I, is this working? Yeah. OK. Um, I'm definitely, that's not what I, if, if that was um, your impression, it wasn't what I left. First of all, the, the point at the end about Amartya Sen and multiple identities was the notion that people can have a range of identities? So I can be a New Yorker, I can be an American, and I can also see myself as part of the international community, right? Uh, I think that what we're seeing in the world actually is a resurgence in 21st century nationalism of state identities, right? Uh, in any number of countries, you know, uh, you know, Brazil is very proud now to get a seat at the table, as is Turkey, as is Indonesia. Uh, we're seeing the breakdown of state structures in other parts, but it's not, it's, it's not the end of the nation state. You know, It's like the state is dead, long live the state, and I see that for a long time to come.
7: Okay, uh, there in the back, you have the mic, sir. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, very interesting. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Uh, Andrew Holland, I'm a senior fellow at the American Security Project. Uh, we, I wrote a paper uh, in November on allevi- alleviating the resource curse, uh, and I was wouldn't have been and, and wasn't as audacious to say, we should stop buying the oil. We should just stop doing it. Um, but what we talked about and what I, I think is maybe, maybe you talk more about it in the book, but uh, is this idea of transparency and the Extractive Industries tra- Transparency Initiative. And uh, SEC just announced a rule that all American companies who are investing uh, in extra- extractive industries around the world have to publish what they pay. And I think this stuff is actually really very transformative because especially with the, the rise of the Internet and social media and everything, that can get into these other countries and show them what their government is making and then get them to ask where that's going and how to actually get that to, to trickle down to the people. So it's a – I think uh, almost in a market way, you know, uh, freedom of information – can bring about this more transparent uh, you know this change that you're looking for within the government without actually going through the process of of doing a a, a full embargo on their their sort of stuff. So open up the information. Uh, I wonder if you might uh, comment on that or think
1: yeah, let me say one thing in general since the resource curse has come up many times. So it's true that Norway, And Botswana have a lot of resources, and they've never suffered authoritarianism or civil conflict. There's one key factor for that. Who gets the resource curse? Countries get the resource curse when the resource money comes in before the government is accountable to the people. When the oil money came into Norway, the government was accountable to the people through free elections and robust civil society and many other When the government is accountable to the people, when the money comes in, the people insist that the money be used for public goods instead of for coercion and clientelism. So the key is, is the government accountable to the people? All the initiatives in this space for the past 40 years, all the initiatives on extractives have had one thing in common. They're trying to get more power to the people over resources and resource revenues. So transparency tries to get more information to the people so they can better control their resources. Kimberly, certification, keep the resources out of the hands of of militias who would sell it off without their consent. Oil to cash, put the money from the resources into the hands of the people, force the government to tax it away. All these initiatives are trying to get more power to the people over their resources. There's a disagreement about how much transparency can help. Let me just say one thing. Transparency, if it's where it's important, is necessary but not sufficient. As in real cases of transparency, transparency is most useful where there's a focused light source. So transparency is most useful in countries where there's a lot of bright people who are paying a lot of attention to natural resource issues know what to do with the data. It'll be more useful in Ghana, and it'll be less useful in Guinea. Transparency can help. We should definitely further transparency where it's helpful. We should further all these initiatives to give more power to the people. None of them is going to be sufficient for the worst resource-cursed countries. And for those countries, we do need to take the more audacious steps.
4: Ian, do you, want to, do you want to weigh in on this? I would, just, I would just mention that I think Venezuela is a counterexample of what you're actually talking about. Venezuela was a country rich in, uh, and still is a country rich in oil resources, but for many decades was a democracy. And under that democracy, they nationalized the, the oil company with the full popular support of the people. They were doing what the people wanted. And uh, as they moved away from policies of economic freedom with the support of the population they tended towards and have become an authoritarian regime so it's not just accountability to the to the government the people may make terrible choices that concentrate power it's the concentration of power and that is the story of uh, of venezuela it's true that it had weaker institutions to begin with uh, when oil came on than, say, Norway. So to me, it's the institutions that matter, institutions that diffuse power. It's not just accountability. The people may uh, vote for the concentration of power, and that can happen under a democracy, as did happen uh, with uh, Venezuela.
0: Okay. Uh, I had a question here on the corner. Uh, We have about five minutes left, so make it a good one.
2: Hi, my name is Jila Ansari. I'm an attorney and also a foreign policy expert. I was also born in Iran and very familiar with the Iranian uh, evolution or devolution, I should call it. Uh, The U.S. foreign policy, particularly British foreign policy, was instrumental in bringing fundamentalist Islam back into Iran and the region. So... (laughs) I know for a fact that it is our foreign policy intention to create these fringe groups that you seem to be alluding that kind of create themselves, bring themselves to power organically, which is completely contrary to the truth. We actually install these regimes to be in power and then we pretend that we're forced to buy oil from them. And it's not just oil, you know, war profiteering is absolutely the game today and it is concentration of power that is the problem. So how do you really address all of those issues when intelligence is used covertly, not just militarily to bring these fringe groups to power?
0: Bruce, you wanna take that one? You could-
3: sure. sure, I, I mean, I, I guess I don't agree you know, there's a lot of flaws in American foreign policy, some of which we've talked about, some of which I've written about. But the sort of the conspiratorial argument that the secret agenda of the U.S. and others in the world is to create regimes that are really contrary to their own interests—I um, don't—I don't see it.
2: Uh, let, let's just point you to several books by various academicians and historians. One is. Uh, Secret Affairs by Mark Curtis. You should read that. There's also a book called Devil's Game by Robert Dreyfus, who specifically they go through the history of foreign policy, British foreign policy, and document what I just stated. Please do not call people conspiracy theorists because that's just a CIA label, and and it's right. it's All easy right, to get away for, with
0: it. We have time for one more question. Okay, now now I'm going to get in trouble with my colleagues because I have two to choose on choose from, and. Uh, The microphone is closer to Andre. Now Andre, make this a good one, because Emma is going to be mad at me for not calling on her. So make it a good one. And quick.
6: I'll try my best. Andre Ladion of Katie Institute. Uh, Leif, I have uh, some kind of, I I found your two most important statements rather problematic. And I will just uh, raise these questions for you, what kind of arguments you can make. First, uh, that uh, you're saying that oil is a source of whatever might, Uh, violence, uh, aggression, and so on. What was before oil appeared in the world? And in the places where there is no oil? Mr. Hitler launched the Second World War, not because he had oil. (laughs) Mr. Milosevic launched Yugoslavian war because he had no uh, oil, not because he had oil. Norway has oil, but it did not start any war (laughs) actually vikings before were much aggressive but looks like with arrival of oil norwegians became much more peaceful okay i can continue okay so i think it seems to me that just you put a lot of attention to one physical object that does not have all these qualifications that you are... Uh, all right, thank you. Go, that, that's one. Good. And <laughs> the second one... No, no, no. second is equally important because you're saying oil belongs to time. the people. You won't even have
0: any time to answer the question. Okay.
6: okay, oil belongs to the people. I think this statement would be very much like by Hugo Chavez or Mr. Putin, who would interpret it as a justification for state ownership for oil instead okay. of giving
1: private ownership. Good to oil and other natural resources. So Andre and I have been been debating about this for seven years, and I'm so glad to see that he's coming around to my position finally. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a proposal for nationalization of oil. The oil is the birthright of the people, but the people can then decide that it should pass into private hands as it does right here. We privatize our natural resources under laws passed by accountable legislators, and that's absolutely fine. It works for us. It might work for other people too. Oil is special. It is the largest source of unaccountable power in the world. It's not the only source of power in the world, of course. There's lots of other sources. Unlike the rest of the developing world, oil states today are no richer, no freer, and no more peaceful than they were in 1980. They don't develop as much. They don't democratize as much. And they're twice as likely to have civil wars. And oil-fueled leaders with revolutionary ideologies like Saddam and Gaddafi are three times more likely to start military actions in other countries. Oil causes all this trouble because the money comes out of holes in the ground. Whoever can keep control of holes in the ground gets a large revenue stream with which they can coerce the people by loyalty and start problems abroad. That's the real problem of oil, and that's the problem that we should solve by living up to our own principle that the resources belong to the people.
0: Okay, thank you all very much. I do want to uh, thank again uh, all the participants. Please join me in thanking them. I should again thank my colleague John Mueller for uh, for, for reintroducing Leif to us. Uh,